I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Sophie Bostock. Sophie is someone who I came across a few years ago. She ended up coming on board with the app as one of our experts for the education section. And she's someone who is fascinated by sleep. She studied medicine at Nottingham University, followed by an MSc in entrepreneurship. After several years in consulting, she then completed a PhD in health psychology at UCL and was investigating why happiness protects against heart disease, which I'd love to hear more about, but today is just about sleep. Sophie's research pointed to sleep as an unsung hero of mental and physical resilience. And so she spent the next five years working on something called Sleepio, which was Big Health's award-winning digital sleep improvement program, first as a research scientist and then as the UK innovation lead. She has published research in collaboration with the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute in Oxford and international researchers, demonstrating the impacts of better sleep on mental health and performance. When I say she's the go-to for sleep in the UK, she is up there and I am so grateful to have her with me today. Sophie, it's great to have you with me. I'm feeling horribly unprepared, but I'm so ready to wing it. My first question for you is that we all know that feeling when we have a good night's sleep and you know when you wake up and you're like, oh, I feel great. But actually, what constitutes a good night's sleep? What do we know as evidence really dictates a good night's sleep versus a bad one? That is actually a superb question because <laughs> we have all these metrics. We've got these wearables. If you go into the lab, you get wired up to something called an EEG, an electroencephalogram, and it will measure various brain waves and activity that's occurring during sleep. And so we know a lot about what's happening, but how that translates into how you feel during the day is really not an exact science. So we do know that um, the deepest phase of sleep is very physically restorative. So certainly we want some of that. And usually you get into deep sleep after about, say, 40 minutes uh, and you have more deep sleep in the first part of the night. So when you do go to bed very late, sort of one, two o'clock in the morning, it's more than likely that you'll be skimping on deep sleep. But then in the second part of the night, we get more REM, rapid eye movement sleep, which is really important for emotional balance. So if you wake up physically restored, but actually you're a bit irritable because you haven't had enough REM sleep in the early hours of the morning, that's not a great night of sleep either. So even though we've got various metrics for the amount of time you spent in different stages of sleep, what we really need is a balance of everything. And and a good night's sleep for you is going to depend on what you did the day before and what you did in the preceding two weeks. So let's say you have had a really busy time, you've been compressing your sleep. Uh, for those of you listening, Alice is nodding at me. I feel like she might have been quite busy. And, uh, <laughs> and all of that kind of adds up, takes its toll. So the sleep that you need um, overnight to make you wake up feeling refreshed is not a direct correlation to your brainwaves last night. It's a combination of things that have been happening over the last few weeks. That's a very lengthy answer um, and imprecise, but, but really I think we don't have a recipe for the perfect night's sleep. It is whatever makes you 
wake up feeling energized and staying alert during the day? That is a really good answer. And I think it is about asking yourself those questions. I often used to do it with my clients, you know, who'd said, oh yeah, I slept all right. And I'd say, how did you feel the moment you wake up? You know, did you feel like you could jump out of bed and you've got loads of energy or did you sort of feel really sluggish and kind of fatigued? And there's lots of questions that we can ask ourselves, aren't there, in terms of being able to check in with ourselves and see where we're at with sleep. And particularly, I I reference it in relation to recovery from exercise. We know that uh, sleep is such a crucial building block of that recovery process from our training. What sort of questions would you say are good to ask oneself, you know, if they're wanting to gauge how good their sleep is when they wake up in the morning? or throughout the day? What are some good questions that kind of help to check in with themselves? Okay, so the first one is probably, do you rely on an alarm clock to wake up every day? Or actually, are you able to wake up quite naturally without one? Now, of course, if you are a shift worker, for example, you've got haphazard patterns, it's more than likely you're going to rely on on an alarm clock. But for most of us, the healthiest sleep pattern that we can have is one that's consistent. And once you're consistent and you're getting enough sleep, your brain learns. It learns to anticipate the time that you usually wake up. And that's when you'll typically wake up before your alarm goes off. So that's that's one really, really key one, I think. Another is, do you feel the need to lie in at the weekends or on your days off? You know, you know if you're so tired, you're like, oh, I definitely need a lie in at the weekend. That is your clue that during the week you are not getting enough sleep. You're not giving yourself the best chance to be the best person of you, you know, seven days a week. Um, other things that might kind of creep in during the day, certainly if you, oh gosh, we all have a bit of a lull often after lunch. That doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong. We have a natural circadian dip every day in our alertness, typically between about one and three. And that's totally fine if your energy levels kind of sag a little bit. But if you find yourself using caffeine, using sugar to just kind of see you through the day, um, I would say that could be an indicator that you're not getting enough sleep. It might also be that you're not taking enough breaks. I speak to a lot of people who struggle with sleep because they are constantly on all day long and they're not actually allowing themselves a little bit of time to to breathe, to rest during the day. And the consequence is that they get into bed and their mind is racing and they're kind of in this state of hyper arousal. So that disrupts the quality of your sleep. Um, but it also means that you kind of you're you're wired and you're relying on these stimulants to keep you going. Mm. So yeah, I think those are probably the big ones. Yeah, those are really interesting, especially the alarm one. And I think that I I count myself really lucky in that I am someone who has never really had many issues with my sleep. And I do really notice that consistency is such a big thing when it comes to sleep. I'm really regimented with what time I get into bed at night and what time I get up in the morning on both weekdays and weekends. And of course, there are going to be nights like I'm going to a party on Saturday night. I'm obviously not going to be in bed at 9.30pm. But for the most part, keeping that level of consistency has been game changing for me. And do you find that something that you really try and recommend to people, you know, as much as you can keeping consistent with that bedtime and wake time? 100%. Now I'm nodding vehemently because <laughs> like there a bunch of research in the last few years has been looking at sleep timing and consistency. And we've known for a long time that for adults, the recommended minimum is seven hours sleep. Seven to nine hours is recommended for most adults of working age. But seven hours, that's quite a blunt tool. It doesn't tell us a lot about sleep quality and it doesn't tell us about timing. And there are now studies which have come out which are 
even if you take away the effect of how many hours you're sleeping, the consistency of that sleep is really important. Because when you shuffle the timing of your sleep forwards or backwards, you're effectively kind of giving your body jet lag. You know, we, our body clocks are designed to shift up to an hour every 24 hours. But if you are having a three hour lion at the weekend and then trying to wake up on Monday morning, you're wrenching your body clocks to perform at a time when they're expecting to be resting. And that puts pressure on the whole system. And it's more than likely that if your schedules are very, very haphazard, you're probably eating late at night as well, perhaps at a time when your body is not expecting it. And all of these things just put more pressure on your system. And if you're a shift worker thinking, oh, well, I've got no choice. Um, of course, there are many things which increase your risk of illness, of fatigue. And I think if you have no choice about that consistency of sleep schedule, it just means that you've got to work even harder with things like diet, things like exercise, things like meditation, rest, so that you are relieving the pressure on your body. Mm, that's so interesting. And I think that, look, it's, it's, um, it's one of those things with sleep where I think we can all experience little bouts of poor sleep. I know that when I'm particularly stressed, I've maybe tipped over on my caffeine intake and just gone a little bit too much. We can have short bouts of poor sleep. Um, but when does that sort of tip over into having negative health implications? And when does it sort of tip over into being kind of chronic poor sleep? Again, that's a great question. You know, what's the yardstick that we use to say, you know, you've, you've got a problem? And, and really, it's very much self-reported. Even the definition of insomnia, which is the most common sleep disorder, uh, is defined as difficulty either falling asleep waking up in the early hours of the morning or waking up just feeling unrefreshed for at least three nights a week for three months or more, that has a negative impact on daytime function. So if you feel like it's been a few months and you're still not sleeping well, but actually you're coping pretty well, that may not fit the classical definition of insomnia. Um, if on the other hand, you know, it's been two weeks and you're massively struggling with sleep, I would still say you have acute insomnia, even though we, we may not characterize that as the, the clinical level disorder. So it, it is about how it impacts on you during the day. Um, I, I guess an important caveat to that is this is assuming that you have adequate opportunity to sleep. And I speak to a lot of you parents of very young children who are not sleeping well through no fault of their own. And I think that actually this should give us all quite a lot of confidence because newborn babies, human babies, are very demanding. Uh, they really don't often sleep for more than two hours at a time. And yet human beings have evolved to keep producing these delightful offspring. So I, I think we do have some resilience to broken sleep patterns, at least for a few months, if not even, you know, the early years of a child's life. Um, but I think that should never continue uh, for years and years at a time. And certainly mm -hmm. if you've been affected by poor sleep for a couple of months, I'd be thinking, hey, look, you know, it's definitely time to do something about this. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to touch on new mums soon. So I, I will save that and park that just for now, because I know that that's a huge topic that people are interested in. But just in terms of the broad spectrum of people that struggle with sleep, I remember when I was working with clients on the gym floor, I would say that 50%, if not more, of my clients struggle with their sleep. And we noticed that 
poor sleep is something that seems to be affecting more people than ever. And I wondered if you could reflect on why that might be. What's the evidence saying? Why are we all, you know, at some point sleeping badly? I'm sure there's stuff to do with phones and technology and light and pollution, uh, noise pollution, sorry. Um, But I'd be really interested to hear what the evidence says in terms of why we are all typically, you know, I say all, that's massive generalization, but why a lot of us are sleeping badly. I think you're right. And I think it's really difficult to track over time what's happened to people's sleep patterns. And there's actually a bit of debate amongst sleep academics as to whether our sleep really has got worse, whether we're really sleeping any less than we were, say, 100 years ago. I mean, I think if we were to look back 500 years before electricity, then definitely I think our sleep patterns probably would have been quite different. And we have got the capacity to disrupt sleep voluntarily simply by switching a light on that is a cue to the brain that it's time to be awake and although we have fail safe mechanisms within the brain that if you stay awake for too long you know you at some point your brain really does switch off you cannot stay awake indefinitely but many of us are just pushing those boundaries and sometimes we're genuinely not aware that we're doing it so uh, you mentioned technology certainly even though the light from your phone is very dim light, really, it's not going to have a very strong alerting effect on your brain. It's a distracting technique. We know that a lot of people almost get into flow when they're on their phone, they're scrolling. Hours can go by. It's not deliberate, this sleep neglect. But I think the more tired you are, the harder it is to go back to the discipline of having a set bedtime, for example. And I almost think we've we've sort of sleptwalked into a place where so many of us are so tired that we're too tired to do anything about it. And, and part of that has come down, I think, certainly um, the COVID pandemic, um, that was associated with very poor sleep for a lot of people. And what happened there is you kind of had this... Uh, triple at least triple whammy of things that were affecting people so the moment that you try and constrict someone's activity and you say look i think you ought to stay inside for longer the impact of natural light on our sleep pattern is quite profound and we know this because if you look at people living in institutions care homes who are not getting enough natural light very often their sleep is very disrupted our brains rely on natural light to keep us ticking over on a 24-hour rhythm. So if you're not getting outside, if you're not sitting by the window, you're going to struggle with sleep. So that was one thing. But I think the major thing that that COVID really taught us, as well as a a breakdown of routines, um, was just the uncertainty, was that lack of control. And we often talk about two systems which control sleep. So you have body clocks or circadian rhythms. There's a second system called sleep pressure that builds up that just means the longer you've been awake, the more you need to sleep. But there's also this third major influence on sleep patterns, which is our stress system, our fight or flight stress response. And the fight or flight stress response is stimulated when you feel that you are out of control, that you're in a situation which is unpredictable or under threat or even just new. Just something is happening that you don't have a mental map of what's going to happen next. Your brain just goes on edge. And you often see this in a very small way. If you go and stay in a hotel, there's something called the first night effect. 
it doesn't matter how plush and delightful that hotel is, the fact that it's unfamiliar, there's a little bit of your brain that goes, oh, maybe I should stay on alert. And we tend to have a slightly lighter night of sleep just that that first night. That's so interesting because I've had, you know when you arrive at a hotel and you're like, oh, I'm going to sleep so, so well. This is amazing. And never do I have a good night's sleep on that first night. Gosh, that's so interesting. I never thought of it that way. That really is. Yeah, I think it is that just that little bit of anxiety that is a very natural response to being in a new environment. And so COVID created this um, ever-changing environment of uncertainty, potential threat. Um, I It really struck home for me because I've always been a great sleeper and I started waking up in the early hours of the morning and I just had to check in with myself. I was like, what is going on? Because I, I didn't feel stressed. If you'd asked me, are you stressed about COVID? I was like, no, I'm quite quiet with work. It's quite nice, uh, at least for, the, for a day or two. Um, but actually, my brain was still on edge. So even no. though you don't necessarily label yourself as stressed, your uh, fight or flight stress response can still be dialed up. That's so interesting. And I think that that's where those sort of coping strategies in terms of the breath work, the meditation can be so crucial because I use this analogy a lot with with people that I work with and sort of talks that I do about turning the dial up and turning the dial down. You know, we want to be able to have control to go both ways. We need that stress response. It's inbuilt into us. And particularly with things like with exercise or with uh, a stressful meeting or whatever it is, we need that dial to be able to turn up. But we also really need to be able to put ourselves back out of it. We need to be able to turn that dial down as well. And I think learning your coping strategies to be able to turn that internal dial down are so crucial. And I guess particularly in reference to sleep. 100%. And I think the more I do what I do, the more I realise actually one of the values of being well slept is that you are more in tune with your natural energy levels. And by that, I mean, you know, a lot of the most addictive substances on the planet, whether it's caffeine, cocaine, alcohol, they're all aimed at changing that kind of energy dial artificially. Whereas sleep is really the only thing that naturally lifts your energy levels. But I think it also helps us dial into how we're really feeling. There's lots of evidence that when you're sleep deprived, you are less good at empathizing with other people, but you're also less able to regulate your own emotions. Um, and the speakers who are uh, speak de uh, sleep deprived will be judged to have lower charisma and less authenticity. We just have this kind of disconnect between ourselves and really what's going on in our bodies. I think the more fatigued you are, the more you rely on stress hormones to just keep you going rather than really being in tune with your, your brain and body. And I think that's where, you know, really showing yourself kindness when poor sleep is, is unfortunately a factor in your life. I know there's definitely been times for myself when I've really had to check in with myself and go, exercise, not today, Alice. Or, yeah. you know, doing loads of stuff or being really, really busy, not today, because when you're already overloaded with that feeling of poor sleep and stress, mood goes, cognitive function goes, um, ability to kind of regulate um, emotions goes. And it's it's sort of really having to recognize that uh, rather than getting frustrated with yourself, you need that little bit of kindness to say, do you know what? My sleep has been really bad. That's why I'm feeling this way. I'm not some, I'm not like going crazy. I've just unfortunately had really poor sleep. No, I think you're right. And, and that actually can give you confidence. You can give yourself permission to feel a bit wretched. It doesn't mean that there's anything really seriously wrong. What you really need is a good night's sleep. And even if you can't get a good night's sleep, thinking about the mums again, um, 
you know, short naps. Sleep is so powerful that we know that just a 10 to 20 minute nap can improve your mood for another two or three hours. I mean, it's like gold dust. And I think um, for, for parents, it often is, it does feel like a golden Definitely. gift. Um, but yeah, don't, don't, um, don't not sleep just because you don't think you've got three hours you know, literally 20 minutes can have a really transformative effect. Definitely. So we've talked about the bad sleep and now we're going to talk about how we sort of avoid bad sleep. One of those though, unfortunately, is caffeine, which you mentioned earlier. Our reliance on coffee is is obviously huge and um, increases when we're tired. We sort of reach for it more and it's almost probably a vicious cycle in terms of then trying to get good sleep. Um, What are your thoughts on caffeine? And if we are going to drink it, when is the best time to drink our beloved coffee because I can't live without it but I need to know when the best time is. I love coffee and then I switched (laughs) entirely to decaf and I don't miss it at all. I think the joy of, of caffeine, look, Caffeine is absolutely a tool. It's a valuable tool. I do quite a lot of work with the military, and uh, you know, if you were to tell them you can't ever have caffeine, I think um, the armed forces would fall apart. It's a bit, <laughs> a bit harsh, but you know, when you're really up against it, you it's really valuable to have this stimulant. What caffeine does is this. I mentioned the second system that influences sleep called sleep pressure. So the more time you've been awake, the more you get this buildup of this chemical called adenosine in the brain, which makes you feel drowsy. And when you consume caffeine, the caffeine molecules block the receptors in the brain that usually harness that adenosine and make you feel drowsy. So temporarily, you trick the brain into thinking that you're not tired. And that can be very helpful if you're driving home one o'clock in the morning, for example, and it's going to actually improve safety. And that is a great time when I would absolutely say if you need to be safer on the roads, because as Jenny, you've got to make caffeine great, except that many of us consume caffeine every day, quite a lot of caffeine every day. And then the brain adjusts. It actually starts to sprout more adenosine receptors. And then you have to keep consuming more caffeine to have the same effect. So if anyone's felt like, yeah, when you first started drinking coffee, maybe one cup, then two, then three, then a triple espresso. Um, And it's because you build up this tolerance. And that means that when you do really need caffeine to keep you awake, it's not going to have the same effect. So you know, it's a drug. Use it carefully. Use it strategically. Um, The other thing that happens with caffeine is that we build up a dependence. So if you have coffee at 10 o'clock every day, nothing wrong with that, except that at 9.45, probably tomorrow, your brain's going, I'm ready. I'm ready for some caffeine. And there's studies which have actually shown that your alertness dips if at 10 o'clock you don't have that cup of coffee. And when you have the coffee, your alertness will pick up but it doesn't pick up any more than somebody who actually had never consumed caffeine because you are just kind of fulfilling that need, that dependence that you've got. For most of us, 10 o'clock in the morning, we're pretty alert and we're gradually getting more alert at that time of day. So I'd almost say it's kind of a bit of a bit of a waste of caffeine. You know, try and trick yourself. Just have decaf. See whether it really makes a difference. Um, because of the dependence, you probably will find that 
uh, if you're a heavy caffeine consumer, then you may have these withdrawal effects. Some people get headaches for a few days. shouldn't be that severe. Um, so it might be worth kind of tapering down. But I often challenge people to have a two weeks where you're not consuming caffeine. Just switch to decaf variants, see if it makes a difference. And you may find that you actually are sleeping better because when caffeine disrupts the quality of your sleep, it doesn't necessarily mean that you wake up during the night. It might just mean that your sleep is a bit less restorative, a bit less deep. Um, and I've certainly had people come back to me and go, wow, I, I didn't realise how much difference caffeine makes. I'm not going back to caffeine. Uh, so, But you, you never know unless you try. So a bit of self-experimentation. I'm going to do it. I'll, I'll report back to you, Sophie, in two weeks. Decaf is the way forwards. Well, I mean, if you're full of beans anyway, Alice, I, don't, I wouldn't worry. You know, Do you this know is, what it is? It's people it's, are feeling tired. I think yeah. it is something that you could try. I, I think what caffeine does, it, it takes energy away from later. When you think about what it's doing with that adenosine, it's not that it's giving you more energy. It's actually taking energy and giving it to you now, but it's taking it away from later. And I think if you think about it like that, strategically, do you you want this caffeine right now or actually do you want to be in tune with the way that your body really feels because a much better option if you're feeling a bit sluggish after lunch is to go for a walk go and get some natural light but if you rely on the caffeine you might not do that because you might falsely feel more energized okay. so it's it's not just the caffeine it's about managing your energy in a natural way I guess yeah and I think I completely relate to the psychological element of it of almost falling into habit of being like well I need a coffee so my morning routine is I wake up quite close to waking up I drink I chug some water and then I have a coffee because I'm like I'm going to the gym I need some caffeine um, and it's almost a, become a habitual thing rather than something that you know if I genuinely checked in with myself and said do I need this coffee right before the gym nine times out of ten I probably don't because I do wake up energized but it might be nice <laughs> you know we've all we've all got a few things that we do that just make us feel good um, yeah. if you love the test taste I'm not not don't want to demonize caffeine certainly but yeah I I have switched to decaf and I don't miss it I'm going to give it a go um you mentioned napping earlier and I think that's another area that people are really fascinated by I think particularly in relation to people who are suffering with their sleep and maybe they feel the need or have the opportunity to nap during the day we're sometimes told napping is bad yeah where does it where do you sit on napping and if your advice is if you can get sleep at any point just try and get a nap what, what's the kind of recommended time frame to stick to we'll be back after this welcome back to give me strength So I guess napping got a bit of a bad name. There was um, treatment for insomnia. So when you have a chronic sleep disorder, uh, it kind of emerged that because sleep is influenced by this sleep pressure that builds up during the day, there was this theory that actually if you have a nap, you can use up that sleep pressure so that by the time it's bedtime, you're not as sleepy. Now, in fact, very short naps, 10 to 20 minute type naps, they do relieve sleep pressure a little bit. They certainly make you less drowsy, but that effect is only going to last a few hours. So if you have a nap in the period that we call this circadian lull between about 1 and 3 p.m. for most people, we're naturally a little bit more sleepy. A short nap at that time is highly unlikely to disrupt your nighttime sleep. So I have no qualms about people who are tired and can't keep their eyes open 
absolutely go for a nap. And in fact, there's a lot of studies on cognition which have shown that if you're trying to learn something, particularly if you're studying, if you are a student, I wish I'd known this as a student, but you you can consolidate what you've learned that day. So it's going to improve your long-term memory because when we learn during the day, we, we tend to retain information in part of our brain called the hippocampus, center of working memory. And hippocampus, one little one either side, uh, the middle of the brain, and they're very small. They don't have much capacity. I sometimes feel like mine is smaller than average. But <laughs> anyway, they get saturated. And it's only through sleep that you start to move these temporary memories into the much larger cortex on the outskirts of the brain. So a nap can help to consolidate memory and also free up more capacity to learn. So if you're at the point, maybe you're studying, revising, where you just feel you can't take anything else in, a nap is a really great strategy. Um, it, a lot of people, they will say, I'm not a napper, I can't nap during the day. And that's okay. It may well be that there is actually some genetic variation in some people napping more easily than others. If that is the case, I would still argue it's worth having a rest. Um, there is certainly some evidence that non-sleep deep rest where you're really deeply physically relaxed uh, can still reduce those stress hormones. It might well help with mood. It's probably less likely to help with memory, but it's not going to do, do you any harm. Yeah, I've seen quite a lot about NSDR and it's it's sort of becoming one of those buzzwords yeah, in, the, in the health and well-being industry. It's a kind of, oh, well, if you can't get a nap, NSDR is the, is the thing to do. But the only thing that I think that is positive about that is, regardless of whether you nap or not, I do think that going back to our original point about turning the dial up and turning the dial down, if it encourages someone to be able to tap into that parasympathetic nervous system to bring themselves back from a stressed state, I do actually think it's brilliant. 100%. I totally agree. And I'm very often saying to people, look, if you can find a couple of opportunities during the day to do exactly that, just practice turning the dial down, then when you get into bed at night, it doesn't feel so foreign for your brain. It knows it's okay to relax. There was also a nice study actually that came out recently that showed that if you do progressive muscle relaxation for 10 minutes before your nap, then that can help because you're actually relaxing yourself first and then you allow yourself to have a nap. And that seemed to increase the amount of deep sleep that people got in the subsequent nap. So um, progressive muscle relaxation, if people aren't familiar, is that gradually sort of putting tension on specific muscle groups, holding it for, say, five seconds and then easing it off. And as you ease off that tension, just really concentrate on letting go, on relaxing and, and move slowly through the body. And over the course of about 10 minutes, you should be able to kind of tense and relax all your main muscle groups. And it's a, it's a great exercise if you're sitting in a traffic jam and uh, just You've got time to kill. It's funny realising as well where you're holding tension where you don't even realise you do. I think the jaw is a big one. A lot of people, you say, relax your jaw and they're like, oh my God, I didn't even realise I was tensing my jaw so much. Uh, now, we've talked about light a lot and it's something that I have learned a lot about over the last few years, become really obsessed with this idea of the eyes being connected to the brain, um, what getting light does to us uh, in terms of our sleep, but also our general well-being. Um, I'd love to hear your advice on optimizing light exposure, um, when's best to get light, what sort of light are we talking about, particularly on you know days where we live in the UK and it doesn't get that light. Um, and what do we really know in terms of the evidence of what that does within us? 
Ooh, big topic. Uh, where do I start? <laughs> I think for me, one of the most interesting things about light is that when we talk about our circadian rhythms, so this is that 24-hour cycle that actually influences every single system in our bodies, whether it's appetite, immune function, um, everything is, is tied to this circadian rhythm. And the timing of those rhythms is controlled by a master clock in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Uh, lovely name. And it's this kind of tiny little center in the, in the center of the brain, and it receives a message from the back of the eyes. So we have these very special receptors in the back of the retina, and they were only discovered about 20 years ago. So it was never known. I mean, I'm so old. When I was at school, you know, we didn't know about these things. We were told that there were rods and cones in the back of your eye and those were responsible for vision. But actually, there's another type of receptor. Uh, it contains a pigment called melanopsin. And it's melanopsin that sends a message to the master clock in the brain telling the brain that it's time to be alert. And melanopsin is particularly sensitive to light that is in the blue sort of wavelength, cyan, light blue of the, of the white light spectrum. So this is where you hear lots of people saying, oh, you know, uh, wear blue light blockers to avoid sort of the, the, the blue light. And certainly there is a bias towards this blue wavelength light that it's particularly alerting. But actually, any light which is bright enough will send that signal to the master clock in the brain that it is time to be alert. So when do we want that? Well, we absolutely want that in the first couple of hours of the day because we want to start the clock on the day so that 16 hours later, our brains know to produce melatonin, the hormone that signals sleep. Melatonin is also known as the hormone of darkness because it, the brain anticipates that at that time it should be dark. Now, if it's still bright because you've got all your lights on, then that can delay the production of melatonin. You don't get as sleepy, you don't get as, as much deep sleep. So light exposure in the first few hours after you wake up, we actually know that our body clocks are even more sensitive to light at that time. Um, they're also very sensitive to light very late at night. So um, but the danger of, of getting a little bit technical here, but I think it is interesting. Um, our, I'm super interested. Our, our body temperature <laughs> follows this circadian rhythm and we typically have the lowest body temperature at about four o'clock in the morning. So that is the time when you are least alert. It's also when there's disproportionately more car accidents because really our brains desperately want to be asleep. Okay. But that timing, um, and that's for someone who kind of goes to bed at 11, say, and wakes up at 7. So your, your minimum core body temperature is going to be about three hours before you wake up. In the few hours after your minimum core body temperature, if you are exposed to light, it will advance your body clock. It will make you want to wake up early. So when people say, you know, go and get light at dawn, it brings your body clock forwards. Whereas when you're exposed to light in the few hours before your core body temperature minimum, so this is about one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, that actually delays your body clock and means that it's going to be much harder to get out of bed in the morning. And this is particularly relevant for teenagers. So teenagers, typically around puberty, your body clock starts to shift back naturally. 
and it makes it very hard to wake up for school. But if you are playing computer games or watching TV with all the lights on at one or two o'clock in the morning, you're actually further delaying your body clock. You're making it even harder to wake up at, say, seven o'clock for school. What you'd ideally do is make sure that there's not a lot of light around from about, say, nine o'clock in the evening, because that's going to help you kind of wind down, get some sleep. And then as soon as possible after waking, get lots of bright light. And that's going to advance the body clock and kind of counter this biological bias for wanting to go to bed later. It genuinely is really tough. We we forget that, you know, for a teenager, do you set the alarm at seven? It's like me setting the alarm at five o'clock in the morning. It feels a bit rough. Um, And that's what they kind of have to tackle day in, day out school. So interesting. And I think, yeah, so one of my New Year's resolutions, I obviously didn't do any focused on anything to do with the way I look. But my sort of health New Year's resolutions that I wanted to focus on were and one of them was, sorry, um, to get outside within the first hour of every, uh, sorry, the first few hours of every day. So as early as I can and whenever it's light, just trying to get outside and and actually allow my eyes to really take in that light. I think it's almost being a bit present in that process as well. So one of the things that I used to do was head outside, but maybe be on my phone a little bit, be like sort of just looking down. <laughs> so actually one thing that I try and do is, is actually look at almost like um, the horizon as such and allow my eyes to really take in that light. And I have really noticed that it does make you feel way more alert um, and kind of energized in that first part of the day, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm very, very lucky. I live by the sea. And this time of year, um, as sunrise is getting just that little bit later, it's fantastic to be actually to be able to go out at sunrise. So we know sunrise and sunsets are also quite important because they're sending very natural cues to your brain about sort of your environment. And the ideal thing is that as, as humans, we are linked to our environment, that we're kind of, we're synced up with the light-dark cycle of the sun. And there's quite a lot of research actually saying that maybe we shouldn't have daylight saving time because it, it pushes us a little bit out of sync with the yeah. natural rhythms of the earth. But, you know, that's a, a topic for another day. But <laughs> um, I think absolutely more time outside, the better. The, the other thing to say is for whatever reason, you can't get outside within the first hour of the day. Don't worry, just get outside for as much as you can in the rest of the day. We do yeah. know that the more light, ex- natural light exposure you get during the day, the less sensitive you are to light at night. So if you actually have to use screens for full bed, for example, so long as you've had enough time outside before that, your circadian rhythms are still going to be pretty strong. You're going to be pretty competent. You're going to be falling asleep well. I think important to say, which uh, you reminded me, Sunlight has these other incredible impacts on your body. You know, sunlight on the skin triggers the release of serotonin. It genuinely makes us feel good. It's also really great for vitamin D production. Um, there's There was some evidence that I saw that actually makes you... Uh, more attractive to the opposite sex. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of benefits to sunlight. So, um, yeah, the more the better. Just make sure you've got your SPF on if yes. you're in it for prolonged periods of time. <laughs> <laughs> One area that I thought it would be really amiss if we didn't go into is motherhood, new mums. We've kind of touched on it a little bit, but it's a period of time where I know that I've you know I've not got children myself but speaking to my friends the sleep is is one of the biggest disruptions to your life and can be really really challenging. 
obviously you can't really change a lot of that situation and it's sometimes just navigating it and and hats off to anyone that's done it I, I from what I've heard it's it can be horrendous but what advice do you give to new mums who are navigating that that unfortunate you know period of lack of sleep are there any things that they can do to kind of try and help themselves to feel just even that little bit better I think actually a lot of things you've already said about giving yourself um permission to be a bit kind of irritable low cognitive function this whole idea of baby brain i'd be very surprised if this isn't mostly due to sleep deprivation so when a new baby is born it has no circadian rhythms programmed into it it doesn't know what's light uh sorry what's daytime and what's nighttime it just wants to eat every sort of two or three hours and sleep every two or three hours and that is clearly not the rhythm that we as adults are used to so it's incredibly disruptive now there is a massive range and in terms of newborns as well so although uh, there is a vague recommendation that newborns probably should sleep for at least 14 hours a day that could be anything from 12 to about 18 hours a day they're hugely variable and you can't control that you know as a new parent you've kind of got to let your little one guide what's going on here they're going to tell you they're going to tell you when they're sleepy they're going to tell you when they're when they're hungry um so it's about resilience it's about if you have a partner working with your partner to try and share the load because if you're both sleep deprived things are going to get really difficult you are more irritable you are more aggressive you are less able to solve problems together this is not your fault this is your brain responding to sleep loss so yeah cut yourself some slack if someone offers you help even if it's just watching the baby for half an hour so you can have a nap take it Uh, (laughs) don't neglect any opportunities for sleep because it really Mm. will when you're sleep deprived it's going to make a massive difference and then in terms of like helping your baby to sleep for longer it is about sort of training them about night and day so that when they're sleeping during the day you know maybe you can afford to sort of play with them more be more energized when they wake up whereas at night you know feeds have got to be boring feeds have got to be in the dark you want their room wherever they're sleeping to have blackout blinds um small babies don't get scared of the dark that usually kind of hits at about age three or so so um keep that sleep environment dark and you can help with that sort of training of circadian rhythms which usually starts to kick in around about three months and then they should start sort of sleeping a little bit longer through the night so interesting um it's amazing how we develop these things you know just kind of the body is incredible isn't it i wanted to now touch really quickly on shift work um it's one of the areas you know i get have a lot of nurses and doctors who follow me uh, many others who do shift patterns um can be a really challenging part of trying to get a good night's sleep i'm sure that you give advice on this all the time but what are your kind of top line tips on on advice for shift workers when it's unavoidable to unfortunately disrupt your sleep. Yeah, I think that that's, that is it. It's it's unavoidable. It does put, as we've already discussed, it puts more pressure on the system of the body as a whole. So things like you're more prone to weight gain, you're more prone to infection, um, you are unfortunately more prone to cancers. Like it, it's tough on the body so for shift workers it takes a huge amount of planning to make it work because you've got to be able to look ahead at your schedule and and make time for exercise that's a huge thing it's really hard but if you can do it actually makes everything else sort of so much easier to cope with so in in some ways the advice for shift workers is not as much about 
just sleep. It's kind of about life. It's it's about about managing what you eat when you eat. So we know that our circadian rhythms are not designed for you to eat during the night. Uh, so if you eat excess calories during the night, they're more likely to be stored as fat. Um, we have more uh, insulin resistance at night. So our metabolism is different. So if at all possible, try and find meal times, main meal times that you can stick to across shifts so that maybe you're just having a snack during the night shift, but you're not having main meals. And then there, there are many different ways of coping with different shift patterns. And it really comes down to your commitments for your family and your partner. So, you know, it's very well saying, oh, go to sleep as soon as possible after a night shift, for example. But some people have got to do the school run. Mm. So I can't be prescriptive. Um, but what I would say is that practicing relaxation as a skill, as we've already discussed, dialing that that dial down, shifting from paras from sympathetic to parasympathetic nervous system, that's a massively important skill. And as a shift worker, if you cannot teach the brain and body to relax, it's going to be even harder to sleep during the day. Yeah. So practical things, um, eye mask, definitely earplugs, blackout blinds, create that safe haven, signs on the door, you know, please leave, I'm sleeping. Protect your sleep, make it a priority. Speak to the whole family about how important it is and when you're going to be able to do things together. Um, a lot of it is about negotiation, explanation, planning, just so you can be super organized and take some stress out of the situation. Yeah, that's a really great answer. Um, I've got two final questions. Um, one of them is, I, I think, a fairly easy one, but is there such a thing as too much sleep? Yes. Um, we well, There is a condition known as hypersomnia, um, which is often kind of someone who's really sleeping, yeah, more than... 11, 12 hours a day, uh, often associated with depression or with other physical or mental health conditions. And we don't hugely understand it, if I'm honest. I think it's probably a problem because it disrupts circadian rhythms in the same way that not getting enough sleep is very disruptive. Too much sleep can also disturb those internal rhythms. Uh, there's lots of evidence, particularly in older populations, that Sleeping for, say, more than nine or ten hours seems to be associated with higher risks of things like heart disease and stroke. And we don't really understand why. And it may be that sleeping for longer is a sign that something is going on. So even if you haven't been diagnosed with heart disease, for example, perhaps the increased inflammation is is causing a problem. So it's it's Really, the jury is out on exactly why it is that 10 hours or more sleep seems to be harmful for health. But generally speaking, there is this kind of bell-shaped curve where the peak for cognitive performance, emotional performance, um, physical health is between seven to nine hours. And anything too much less or too much more seems to cause problems. I'm really glad I asked that because that is actually, yeah, that is actually really interesting. Uh, final question, and I guess it's an interesting one because I think they're very uh, trendy at the moment and people love sharing their data. We love a bit of data. Uh, but what are your thoughts on sleep trackers? Do they actually have a place? Is there any value in them? Or are you kind of just like, just trust your body, listen to your intuition? 
Oh, great question. I I have a bit of a love-hate. I certainly, I have my wearables. I've tried all sorts. Um, I think they're fascinating. Uh, but very often, if I come across someone who is struggling with sleep, one of the first things that I will do is advise them to take it off because the key thing about sleep is how you feel during the day. And if you are obsessing about what stage of sleep you were in for how long actually it can be quite disruptive and I know plenty of people who the first thing that they do in the morning is check their sleep tracker or even in the middle of the night which is truly disruptive Uh, so that's the wrong emphasis but they are a tool and if you're using that tool to objectively track what happens for example if you cut out caffeine for two weeks it might be quite interesting to look at your wearable data and go, hey, has this made any difference? Or alcohol. I know a lot of people who have looked at uh, sleep quality measures after a a night of drinking and realised that it totally disrupts your sleep and it can be a real incentive actually to cut back. So I think they do have a place. Um, I always have to caveat that so far they're still not terribly accurate for sleep staging. So they've all got much better, more sophisticated. Uh, Most wearables are really pretty good at knowing how many hours of sleep you've had. Um, But a recent validation, even for my favorite wearables, suggests they're less than 70% accurate for sleep staging. So that's better than a guess, but it's still not 100% accurate. So don't read too much into it. I I would try not to compare yourself with other people. Um, You know, if you're using it to track changes that you've made over time, I think that's that's a really good use. But I think people often get worried that they're not getting as much deep sleep as the average person. But maybe that's because their wearable isn't completely accurate. Um, So yeah, don't don't read too much into them. And never, ever try and analyse like one night and go, oh, what, what went wrong? It really is about trends because our sleep changes from night to night very naturally. And you've got to kind of trust that and just look at longer term trends, I think. I'll never forget when Paddy got his sort of weak band and he was tracking his sleep and had a few boozy nights out and was like, oh my God, my sleep. <laughs> Which, as you said, is definitely an incentive to kind of rein it in a little bit sometimes. <laughs> I think it is. And I have to admit, I, I use a, a whoop and I found it helpful for not overtraining, actually, just kind yeah. of to remind you that sometimes you, it's okay to have a quiet day. It's okay yeah. to have a rest day. Yeah. Uh, Sophie, this has been absolutely fascinating. We have crammed so much into just under an hour. So I'm honestly so grateful for your time. I think we'll put all the links to where people can find you because I'm sure there will be other questions that I didn't ask today. Um, But just for today, thank you so much. You are just so knowledgeable and it's really been nice to kind of explore this topic with you. So thanks for your time. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate, review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time. Insanity Group.